is from the Kata Upanishad. The Creator pierced outward the senses of man, hence one's lo one looks outward, not towards the self. But the wise, looking for immortality, turns his eyes within and beholds the self. Well, we use these words in and out, within, look within, looking outward, interiority. We use those words all the time. And spiritual, being spiritual is about being interior. And if we're just running around outside, we are not very spiritual. And there's some truth in that, but we never should forget that these are metaphors within and outside. They're only ways of trying to express an experience that really is neither in inwards or outwards. When Jesus was asked uh, how long will it take to get to the kingdom of heaven or when will we know that the kingdom of heaven is coming, he said you can't observe it. So you, you can only observe something if you're on the outside. So you can't observe the coming of the kingdom. Because, he said, and then this is where words challenge us, he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And that sounds easy, so we just have to close our eyes and go inwards. But then that word or phrase in, is within you can also be translated as among you. It's a very different sense, isn't it? So the kingdom of heaven is inside me, the inner room, but it's not just that. He says, actually, it's among you. That means it's how we relate to each other. It's what happens among us as well. So this is what, this is maybe a way of understanding what in the Indian tradition is called Advaita, or non-duality. Non-duality, Advaita, means not one, not two. So not in, not out. Not one, not two. And this is a very, uh, sounds a very sort of abstract idea, but it's actually experiential. We can only understand it as an idea if we've had some kind of taste of it as an experience, which meditation clearly gives us. We all know that when we meditate regularly, we change. Meditation changes us. And how does it change us? It changes us in our relationships 
to the world, to other people, to our work, as well as to our, and within ourselves. A student of mine uh, recently said, told me his wife told him after one week of his meditating, she said, Jim, you've got to keep meditating. <laughs> because uh, she, she said, why? He said, well, have you noticed he hadn't had any big overwhelming experience? Something attracted him to meditation, wanted him to keep meditating, but he wasn't, he wasn't having any great revelation or anything. But she said, within a week, within a week of meditating, she, had, she said, he, their relationship had changed. You pay attention when I speak to you. When we talk in the evening and catch up with the day, you listen to me, whereas before, you would be looking at your, at, your, at your messages within a couple of minutes. So we know meditation changes us. It changes us in our relationship to the outside world. That's how we can see that it changes us. And yet it's an interior work. I'm not doing anything externally to myself. So, so in other words, we have to have some taste of this experience of the change that meditation brings us before we can begin to understand what Advaita or non-duality might mean. And it's an important idea. I mean, you can get through life without worrying about it. You can meditate without understanding it. But um, if you are interested in, in thinking about the meaning of meditation, you will eventually have to deal with this idea of non-duality. And it's very universal. We find this non-duality idea at the heart of all the great traditions, wisdom traditions, uh, in their mystical dimension. When we think of religion, we usually think of beliefs that people have, rituals that they perform, uh, externals. But there are actually three dimensions to religion, to all religion. There's the um, institutional dimension, you know, the temple, the synagogue, the mosque, the church, um, and the rituals and so on that are performed there, and you've got to do it this way and not that way, and use that kind of wine and not that kind of wine. So there's the institutional, and then the priesthood and the, all, all of the paraphernalia. All religions have that to some degree. Externals, institutions. Then there's the intellectual. The intellectual, which we, when we recite the creed in, in, in church on a Sunday, or when the Buddhists constantly repeat the Four Noble Truths, or the Eightfold Path uh, to enlightenment or to... The Hindus are less... Uh, well, they have a very, very complex and untidy and, um, you know, 
uh, ancient religious set of beliefs and very rich, but 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 no, not not like Roman uh, or Christian dogma. And similarly, the Jews and they you've got that you've got to believe certain things or hold to certain things if you are technically a Jew. So there's the intellectual aspect of religion, and then there, but there is also the mystical dimension of religion. And it's this mystical dimension that usually gets forgotten. That's why religion so often goes off track. If it just becomes institutional or just intellectual, then you end up you know, with suicide bombers claiming to do things in the name of their God. So the mystical dimension is, is, is universal, and it has well, the remarkable thing about it is, is that this mystical dimension in all of the different religions has, has so much in common. They're different, and you can't just fold them all together and make a big um, blancmange out of it. But uh, they're very different, but they are remarkably similar. They echo each other, there are symbols, there are even ideas, and there are external aspects which are very similar. And this points to something you know, very important about uh, religious experience or about the meaning of life, that there is something universal and unifying about it. And again, once this med meditation experience has begun to happen in your life, you begin to see things um, with less division or, or less conflict and you'll find that you'll be able to deal with conflict better. There was a, a hospital uh, once where some nurses uh, started a meditation group, and they met at, I don't know, early in the morning, a group of them who'd been on a course, and um, they uh, invited anybody else to come, but they was surprised one day when this woman came in from one of the other departments and um, she was the most unpopular woman in the hospital. Everybody had trouble with her. She was a difficult person. And so these nurses said, oh, what's she doing here? <laughs> but they could hardly send her away. So she came and stayed with them and every day she would come and meditate with them. They didn't say anything, they didn't have time, they had to be in and out in 20 minutes. But after a few weeks or so, one of the, they, one of the nurses said to another one, and you notice that she's a little nicer these days, a little easier to get on with? And the other one had the presence of mind to say, yes, you know, maybe it's us, too. Maybe we're changing. So, this experience of meditation, which is very subtle, but very powerful and very real, has this capacity to overcome differences. 
and to allow us gradually to see more of what we have in common than what is different and what divides us. It's a question of degree at first. So this is why we wanted to talk a little bit about um, non-duality. And I'll just say a few, few words, a few more words about it um, this evening and we can f follow it up a little bit more. Um, and it's not meant to be a big intellectual uh, mountain to climb. Uh, take out of it what, what is useful, what's helpful, and what, if, if there's something that doesn't seem clear, it's, it's my fault or Barry's fault, not your fault, <laughs> because it's uh, really quite simple. But the two, two books that I think are very helpful to, to approach it if you wanted to follow it up is this book, Word into Silence, which I read from earlier, Father John's first book, which is, uh, he called, it's called a manual for Christian meditation. It's the first introduction to meditation. And um, it's actually, uh, the first section is called Introduction, Being Restored to Ourselves, Learning to be Silent, The Power of the Mantra, The Fullness of Life. So it's about the experience, what meditation is like experientially, and then the second section is meditation, the Christian experience, the, f the self, the son, the spirit, the father. So he approaches it as a Christian meditator would in terms of this symbol of God that we have at the heart of our Christian um, faith and imagination the symbol of the Trinity. And uh, then there's another section where he has 12, 12 steps for meditators, short sections on other things. The other book is called Satchidananda uh, by a man called Abhishek Tananda, but actually he's, he was a Frenchman. He was a French monk from the north of France who spent 20 or more years in his monastery in France and then felt called to go to India, but this was way back in the 40s. Uh, so he was a, a long way ahead of modern interreligious dialogue. Or, um, so what he was doing was quite pioneering. And he went out uh, to join another French uh, priest who had gone out in a similar sort of way, called Jules Montchemin. And uh, so they were deeply attracted to Indian spirituality, if you like, or Indian thought, or Indian religious experience. Particularly, it's a central teaching on Advaita, on non-duality. They were deeply drawn to that, but they, want, they were Christian, and they, were not, they didn't want to renounce their Christian identity or faith. But they were drawn to it, and they, they struggled with it, especially Abhishek Tananda, Henri Lasseau, his name was, really struggled with it because uh, it seemed to him, uh, I can't deny, he, he said, that there is this profound, this great experience of ultimate reality here among the, the Indians in their tradition. And they, they are not Christian. So how do I, 
How do I relate to that? I can't say that it's an illusion, it's unreal, it's pagan, or, you know, it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's profound. And it's, so how do I relate to it? So he struggled a long time. And this book was his last work, actually. He died shortly, well, I think, actually, as it was being printed. And it represents his very courageous and beautiful attempt to integrate um, his own faith, Christian faith, with this Indian doctrine of, in, of Advaita, of non-duality. And the way he did this, of course, was to, was to realize that we, that the Christian also has this Advaita at the center of their faith and their vision of reality. And that the concept or the idea or the symbol of the Trinity is Advaitic, not one, not two. God is not one, God is not two, and it's, this, this is expressed in the symbol of the three. But as we know, as we all, well, many of us probably uh, learn from catechism, God is three in one, whatever that means. But we all learnt, you know, basic Trinitarian ideas of, that the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are one uh, God, but they are three persons in one God. Now, intellectually, uh, saying that is one thing, symbolically reflecting on it is, is different. And what we are going to try to explore is, this, is the idea that there are certain symbols of which Trinity or non-duality is one, is, 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 is an example, which are healing. They advance or they encourage or awaken the healing process in us at a deep level. And think of symbols, how important symbols are. Actually, religion is much more about symbols than it is about ideas. Um, the difference between a symbol and a sign is very important in this respect. Um, you know, as you're driving down from Cork, you'll see signs to Castletown Bear with the number of miles. That's a sign post. It's very useful, and you hope that it's right, pointing you in the right direction. But it's, that's all it is. It's just a sign. But what's the symbol of Bear Island? Or what does Bear Island symbolize? Uh, if you go, how many of you, have you been to the, see the Standing Stone yet? Uh, you must go to the Standing Stone. That was always said to be the uh, exact geographical, physical center of the island. And it's uh, one of those ancient Standing Stones. Uh, it was put up uh, maybe 3,000, 4,000 years ago, something like that. Nobody knows what it's there for. But we know that it's there, it's just there. And, uh, but it symbolizes the island. 
and uh, in fact, actually there's a picture of it as you um, used to be anyway as you got off the, the plane at Cork Airport as you as you walk up the stairs from the outside there's a picture of it there and um, then it was later calculated that actually that ancient legend was right. It is the exact center of the island, how they ever knew to put it there is a, is a mystery, which adds to the symbolic power of that physical thing. And when we have a Holy Week retreat here every year, on Easter Sunday morning, we gather around the Standing Stone to look uh, for the sunrise, wait for the sunrise. Come sun or rain, we are there. And, you know, so it has this symbol, symbolic power. It gathers us, gathers people. If the islanders woke up one morning and found some, somebody had stolen the stone, you know, it would be a desecration of some kind. They would feel really abused. So anyway, there's a big difference between just signs and signs that may be accurate or signs that may be empty signs, signs that no longer have much value to people and die out. But symbols are, are more holistic. Carl Jung said that symbols are an essential part of the healing process because they have an influence over and both within and without. They have an influence more than you can observe or measure on the people who are affected by those symbols. Might be a symbol, might be a symbol like the standing stone to go there, you know, has, a, has an influence on you. you you feel something, you might say, well, this is mysterious, this is beautiful, this is strange, uh, or it might be a ritual that you take part in, or, you know, there are many kinds of sim symbols, maybe rituals or objects or visual things or musical things. So anyway, um, so that's how we have to think about this image of the Trinity, I think, more as a symbol than um, just a sign or just something you've got to believe or not. So, um, now the interesting thing is, is that this symbol of the Trinity that we're familiar with in the Western world, or some people are still, uh, from Christian teaching, is, has echoes or is part of a universal uh, perception in many other cultures, in many other deep wisdom traditions. And just one example of that is in India. Um, the, what, what corresponds to the Trinity, the sort of archetype of the Trinity in, for us in the West, would be Trimurti in uh, in Sanskrit, which refers to three um, uh, aspects in the same way. As, just as the Trinity has three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we have to, why do we say Father? 
very male, sang is very male, spirit is kind of neutral, although it's a feminine word in most languages. So we shouldn't be put off by that gender accident. And many symbol, many um, passages in the Bible which refer to the father are actually very, very maternal or very f much more to do with qualities we associate with women than we characteristically do with men. Nevertheless, it was a patriarchal society in the Middle East, and um, the earliest known images of God in human expression were feminine. God was seen as, as maternal or, or feminine, actually quite frighteningly maternal, some of them, but um, uh, not like our, the image of, of, of Mary or um, Quan Yin in China. But anyway, the, the tradition that we have inherited, the predominantly, the predominant image, of course, is, is masculine. But we shouldn't be too distracted by that. We're a bit distracted by it, but when you, when you say f the Father, when Jesus says, I have come from the Father, and I'm returning to the Father, you know, that's just a word. But it's a personal word, isn't it? If he has said, I am coming from the supreme source of unity, it, it wouldn't sound very personal. The, the symbolic meaning here is there is a personal relationship and a very close, intimate relationship with your father or your mother. This is nothing, nothing could be more immediate. So, what corresponds to father in, uh, in the Indian trinity is Brahma. Brahma is a creator, is the creator, as the creator, the source, just as the father in the trinity is this kind of unknowable, uh, ex ex exceedingly transcendent source. And then what corresponds to the sun in Indian, the Indian symbol is Vishnu, which is a god uh, known as the preserver. Keeps things, keeps things together, gives coherence to things, gives unity to things. And there aren't really, there isn't a great devotion in Indian temples so much to Brahma, but to Vishnu, you, you, you may have a very special devotion to Vishnu and go on pilgrimage to Vishnu temples and so on. So it depends on what you, what you like. And then the third, uh, what corresponds to spirit, I think you could say, maybe in um, Indian tradition is Shiva. And again, it's a very powerful f source of devotion uh, and, and, and feeling for Indians. And, the sh and Shiva is both the destroyer of things and the regenerator of things. So Shiva is both, as it were, creative and destructive, positive and negative, same force, something that, that um, is both joyful and wonderful, but also terrifying. So there are many other sort of uh, 
parallels that, that we could draw. But what we'd like to look at is this word that um, Abhishek Tananda uses uh, for the title of his book, Satchidananda. So, Sat, Chit, and Ananda. Yes, exactly. Not true. Well, this is being. This is usually translated as being, so the, like the ground of being. You can't get you can't get more basic than the fact that something is. So that's like the father. Okay. Then chit is consciousness. So in the Trinity symbol, um, the father generates the son, doesn't he? So the, and the sun becomes the word of God. The sun or the word. So it's the conscious expression or the conscious manifestation of this uh, being. And then Ananda is like the spirit, which is joy. And we, you know, you, you see this in the, in, the New, in the New Testament, especially. The, the joy of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is, as you, there is joy, celebration, so on. So what we'd like to do is just explore, I mean, there's no f great formula to this, but to explore these aspects of the symbol of wholeness. I mean, nothing could be a greater symbol of wholeness than the Trinity or Satchidananda. It's all there. It's not only all there, but it is all connected. It is, you may focus conceptually upon one aspect or another, or you might feel that you are experiencing one aspect more than another, you might feel the joy of the spirit, or at times you just have a sense of wonder at the fact that things exist at all, and that you're in this moment. Or you may be feeling conscious and uh, understanding things and seeing the coherence and the meaning of things. So you may as it were, highlight different aspects of this, but you can't separate them. And then finally, just as, as there's something useful about this symbol, is that it relates to the human being, to each of us. This isn't just, maybe we can't, we can't say anything about this ultimate reality of life that we call Satchidananda or God the Trinity, unless it's coming out of ourselves. How can we think of something that isn't like us in some way? And maybe we can only think of this because we are actually like it. That we are, in the Christian language, an image of God. We're a little microcosm of God. And the Indians have a similar idea, it's not exactly the same, 
when they speak about the Atman, I think uh, Barry read about this today, and, uh, and Brahman. So, Atman is the personal manifestation of God in you, in you, in you, in you, and in me. So when we meditate, we, um, we are turning away from the little self, from the false self, from our ego and all our little egotistical tendencies. We're turning away from that as we let go of our thoughts, that's what we're doing. We're turning away from that towards what? Towards, we could say, the true self. Or the spirit. All these words are all rather interchangeable, but let's say it's the spirit within us. Or the Atman, as the Indian language, the Indian thought would express it. But, so, and, and we know that when we are in the self, or when we are in this Atman, what do we feel? We feel centered. We feel whole. We feel complete. We feel healed. And you can have that experience of being in the Atman when you're on your deathbed. Or when you've just been diagnosed with some uncomfortable disease. Or when you've just lost your job. It isn't dependent on outward circumstances or even anything that you could call you know, external or on the material realm. In fact, research shows that uh, with, the, with those who are, with, with patients who are dying, that m the, oh, the a very significant majority of patients who are dying, whose physical pain is being taken care of, so they're not unnecessarily suffering, and especially those who have a sense of meaning in their life, which means a connection with their family or with other people or with a sense of purpose in their life, that these people in their dying will say on a questionnaire, uh, they have never had a better quality of life. An amazing thing to say. And doesn't it make you think, well, happiness doesn't consist in getting what you want. It doesn't depend upon externals. So this experience of the Atman, finding the Atman, that's what all of the great wisdom texts uh, are about. Getting through the junk, getting through our distractions, and finding this self being in this way. It's not, you know, you don't sort of get to a point and say, oh, there's my true self over there. You can't observe it. That's what you are, or that's how you are. And that's what you know and feel in that experience, or that, in that time. So that's the Atman. Now, the 
So we all know that's why you know we meditate because we get closer to the Atman, and uh, and the Atman gets closer to us and, and stays with us more and more during the day. So this we could say is our sense of ultimate health, and our coming into this is healing. Because whatever may be upsetting you or making you suffer, whether it is cancer or a broken marriage, anything that's causing you to suffer can be healed, not necessarily cured, but can be healed by entering into this experience. So, you're meditating because your marriage is falling apart. Well, it won't necessarily save your marriage. Or if you've got a fatal disease, it isn't going to cure the disease. Or if you're in debt, it's not going to pay off your debt. But, nevertheless, even facing that reality, that particular reality of suffering in your life, you feel whole and healed. So that's why we're bringing this in to this question of healing. And the idea of healing in, in every moment is that the Atman isn't just depending upon those times of meditation, morning and evening, which you try to, try to put into your life. This is your whole life. The whole purpose, meaning of this is that it is continuous. It's the present moment. Now, the Indian, uh, uh, the next step, the Indian uh, thought says, is that Atman and Brahman are one. You are that, is the famous expression in the Upanishads. You are that. Now, this is, this is, that is a statement of non-duality. But this is what we, what we hear echoed in Jesus as he speaks about the Father. The Father and I are one. But there's almost, it's almost something self-contradictory about that. You, you and I are one. Well, Yes, in some way we are, but you know, there's still you and I. So it's that ambiguity or that apparent self-contradiction which opens up a third dimension. So this is not something that the left hemisphere of the brain handles very well, or if you think that reality can only be expressed in figures and in you know, numbers, uh, this isn't going to make much sense to you at all. And in a way, this language is, is much closer to the language of poetry than it is to the language of uh, academic philosophy or the language of mathematics. This is not mathematics. When we talk about one and two and three, in this context, we're not talking about one potato, two potato, three potato. But these are symbols. Anyway, so we have, but you know, but I think these are, this, 
even considering these insights that have come down to us in different ways through the, through the millennia, even considering them is opening ourselves to a symbolic way of being, to a symbolic perception. We're using or we're, we're contacting a symbol. And that symbol, as I said, has a kind of influence over us at every level of our being, even our physical level. You know, we're doing research, Pyrrhic uh, is doing research with Barry, and we're doing this research into, into the effect of, of meditation on health professionals. And we're looking at it both quantitatively and qualitatively. And there are very real things you can measure. Maybe Pyrrhic will tell us about them later. But, so we shouldn't leave that out of the picture entirely, but it's certainly not the whole picture. It's only one aspect of the picture. But even being aware of that one aspect of the picture makes you realize the picture is bigger than you thought. Why should meditation have that physical impact on you? Why should it be good for you both physically and obviously psychologically? What are you doing in meditation that would bring about these very percept perceptual changes? What are you doing? You're just sitting, doing nothing. You're not taking anything. You're not doing anything except what? Being. Being in a certain way. Being attentive. Being present, being now. That's what the mantra helps us to do. And yet that, that apparently doing nothing, which is being, has this major effect upon us to make us feel more whole, more healed and better. So anyway, we'll, we'll play around with these, some of these aspects of the symbol um, over the next um, few days. <laughs>